unscripted. Each episode is available to view on YouTube, so be sure to check us out. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Don Juan Part 2. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so last episode, um, wait, wait, your name is Don... Bradley. Bradley. Yeah. Is that your full name, like including your last name? Or is it your first name That's is Don and your last name is Bradley? My middle name is Patrick. Patrick. Don yeah. Patrick Bradley. Yeah. Okay, we didn't cover that in the last episode, so now you know. But I was just, this just sounds like such a cool title. Like Don Juan Triumphant, fan of the opera. Oh, yeah. Yeah, anyway. So so this is part two, because last episode um, we talked about the 116 pages and the book that Don Bradley wrote, um, kind of explaining a lot of the things that you do, we just don't know. Like we, we yeah. just miss that we're lost, yeah. but like we have yeah. cool accounts from Joseph's fa- Joseph Smith's father yeah. and Martin Harris's brother. Yeah. Watch that episode, it will blow your mind. Are you crazy? Am I? Or am I so sane that you just blew your mind? <laughs> but but this is part two, where we're going to dig in deeper to how um, your your experience and research and, and your search to understand um, that the history helped you with your testimony. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. when we were talking before you went into the last episode, you mentioned that you've been in deep, elbow deep in church history since you were like 17, right? 17. So that's the first time I went to the actual church archives okay. to look cool. at the original sources. Is that kind of where your story begins or, or where do we where do we start? In terms of a faith journey, basically, yeah, it does start when I was a teenager. So I grew up, um, my parents were converts. They were very devout. Um, I grew up very devout. When I was about 15, I had a real spiritual awakening. I became really concerned with spiritual things. And um, that led to a lot of reading just to understand the gospel better. But then when I was 17, um, it's actually kind of like the wildest story um, (laughs) how this happened, that I first encountered doubt. Mm -hmm. So it was family home evening. All right. Don't hear that. <laughs> for, for a family home evening activity, my parents decided they would take us to a University Mall in Orem. There was a Deseret book there, and my dad said he would buy us each any book that we wanted. That's cool. So I went to like the general authority section, and I'm looking through, and there's you know like Boyd K. Packer, and then there's like you know, going alphabetically, and then there's like Joseph Fielding Smith here, and in between. There's B.H. Roberts. Ooh. And B.H. Roberts, I had another book by him already. I knew he'd edited the history of the church. I knew he'd been a general authority mm-hmm, right. many years earlier. And so there was this really cool-looking book by him titled Studies of the Book of Mormon. Oh. Do you know the history? I don't know if you know the history of this. I but, have but heard of, the, of it. Many of the listeners might not yeah, know I say, I'm, I'm the history. Dark. Yeah, okay. Can I try? Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is a controversial book because it's when B.H. Roberts starts playing devil's advocate. Exactly. And he starts looking into what critics might be able to use against the church. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, uh, he comes to the conclusion, he doesn't lose his testimony, but he says, um, these things could be concerning. They could be, you know, Mm -hmm. used against the church, things that Mm -hmm. we should be aware of. Yeah. And it led to a lot of critics taking those words from B.H. Roberts and saying, look, 
crap. He thinks that it's, you know, all a sham and stuff. So this is B.H. Robert, a general authority's devil's advocate case against the Book of Mormon, where he's arguing, well, maybe it's not historical, maybe Joseph Smith could have written it, Maybe it's so on. the Hebrews. <clears throat> yeah. He lays out all different kinds of arguments, and I had not encountered any of these. I'd seen anti-Mormon literature sure. at the local library, and I looked at it some, but I always kind of had my guard up, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because so, when you know it's anti, you're able to, like, prepare yourself. Exactly. And you look at it, like, skeptically, right. critically. This came in under the radar. This was B.H. Roberts. I wasn't concerned about reading him. He'd never intended this manuscript to be published. But several decades after he died, a scholar, like, had possession of a copy of the manuscript and decided to publish it. Mm. Oh, wow. And so it was published by the University of Illinois Press. And so I'm 17. I've never doubted, you know, the, Nephi had been as real to me as George Washington. Yes, I'd never right, doubted the one right. more than the other, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'm reading this book, and he's, like, doing his best, basically, to lay out a case against it all. And it just floored me, right? It, like raised all kinds, called everything into question. So this is my first struggle with doubt, right? And I... Well, you're getting hit I, hard because yeah. B.H. Roberts was a very intelligent person. Yeah. So, like, his argument was not, yeah. like, silly. Yeah. And at the time, um, I don't know, like, like in in the last several years, like, acceptance of a limited geography theory of the Book of Mormon has spread. But what I had been told... Uh, like my dad was definitely sort of more old school on that. I'd been taught that like all of the Native Americans from, you know, right. like Alaska down to, you know, Tierra del Fuego in South America <laughs> were Lamanites. And, and like, like these were, the origin of this people was Lehi. There was no other origin. Right. Lehi and Mulek, right? Right. And um, so B.H. Roberts lays out a case that completely eviscerates that. And so he argued, for instance, that uh, you couldn't have the development of all known Native American languages from a common ancestor language just a couple thousand years ago, that it would have taken more time than that. Mm. And so, you know, coming from a limited geography theory perspective, like people generally have today, that's that's not not a problem. Coming from this other perspective, it's a huge problem, right? So, So I encountered doubt. I started becoming aware of other controversial issues and during the same time was when I first went to the church archives to do my own archival research I was able to kind of come to some provisional answers uh, for myself to these questions put sort of put them on the shelf like in the back of my mind and like I went on a mission to Houston um, and everything was fine, right? Mm-hmm. But when I got back from my mission, I, I kind of always had these issues in the back of my mind, so I kind of took them off the shelf, and I'm going to explore this more, right? Mm-hmm. Different questions of church history, different questions about the Book of Mormon. So I was researching, for one thing, just to understand better, because, because um, I was really devout. Church history was sacred history to me, so I wanted mm-hmm. to understand, you know, How did this all happen? What can we learn from it spiritually? But I also had these like faith issues kind of on the side to to grapple with. What does all this stuff mean? Mm -hmm. And so um, I had various projects, various lines of research in uh, Restoration Scripture, 
in the history of the church. And my um, approach was kind of always to go back earlier and earlier. Because what I realized is you can't understand how things are now if you don't understand what came before. Because mm-hmm. the way things are now in the church, in the world, everything Builds developed from what came earlier. So then I started studying like the later life of Joseph Smith, like Nauvoo, and I started realizing, well, I can't understand Nauvoo if I don't go back to Kirtland, right? right? I can't understand Kirtland if I don't go back to New York, Mm -hmm. right? So I kept going back earlier and earlier in my research and eventually was really focusing a lot on the Book of Mormon and later even on the first vision, right? Because I keep going earlier. Um, And I encountered a lot of questions so when you read a book by someone else on the history of the church, like Richard Bushman, um, you are reading something that they have already integrated. They've kind of already intellectually digested the material, like like spiritually and intellectually. They've made sense of it for you. Right. When you're doing your own original research with the historical documents, that burden of making sense of it intellectually and spiritually isn't anybody else's. It falls entirely on you. It's kind of overwhelming. I kept finding things that were different from what I had thought they had been and kind of I'd find a way to make sense of that and then I'd find more things that were different from how I thought and I'd find a way to make sense of that. And eventually I started to hit a wall in really making sense of it spiritually, right? Mm -hmm. How did this all fit together? Um, And so I, I increasingly came to question the foundational stories of the foundational narratives and claims of the restoration. And I didn't even realize for a lot of that process that I was losing my faith. I actually didn't realize it till near the end of the process, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Several years, you know, into like adult life, right? Doing this research for several years. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I don't, I don't really believe anymore. You know. And when you say believe, are you, are you talking about just the church or even God and, and so Jesus Christ? At first, it was just the church. And then sort of for similar reasons, um, I started recognizing the same kinds of problems with the Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be the pattern when, yeah. when a lot yeah. of people leave the church and they kind of think, well, if if my church wasn't true, what other none of them are going to be. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I'd been so certain about the church. Right. And if I could call that into question, I could call anything into question, right? right? Mm-hmm. I eventually came to not believe, this was later, but eventually came to not believe in God. And that had to do with like the problem of evil and suffering, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Particularly the sufferings of children. Mm-hmm. I knew of very specific cases, yeah. right? That just tore at my heart. Yeah. And I just didn't how to reconcile those with God's love. I didn't know. And so right. and so I for a while became um this didn't last too long, but for a couple of years I became an atheist. And I thought with the way that I was constructing the early history of the church, Joseph Smith, Book of Mormon, I had really wanted my research to make a larger contribution to the church. The church is my community, like a like my family, mm-hmm. right? right? And I wanted, of course, you want to contribute to your family. You want right. to have a good influence. And I started thinking, I have nothing to offer. Like anything, all the things that I'm piecing together, 
would be a contribution to the community, like taking a jackhammer to the foundations is a contribution to a building. Right. right. Like I, I, it just didn't make sense to think in terms of a contribution anymore. I was an atheist. I didn't. I was disillusioned with Joseph Smith. I thought I had no contribution to make. I left the church. So when I say I left the church, I left. Goodbye. Right. I didn't just stop believing. I removed my name from the records of the church. And so for five years, I was wow. not a member wow. anymore. Right. So I had resigned my membership. How old were you at this time? <clears throat> so uh, when I had first lost my faith, I was 30. And then it was a few years later that it was not long after that that I left the church. Okay. Wow. Wow. So like mid 30s. Yeah. Yeah. When did you feel. Did you hit a low? Like. Was there a moment where you were just like, what does what my life become? Where am I? Yeah. Now, interestingly, I didn't, my spiritual turnaround didn't come at a low point. And this is, this is yeah. actually, I, there's actually some significance I attribute to this that I think might be something that could benefit other people. Definitely. Right? Awesome. Um, so, so I did definitely, around the time that I actually decided to leave the church was probably uh, the low point, um, life had ceased to make sense to me. I had had a tremendous desire for larger meaning to life, for there to be some ultimate meaning to my existence. And it seemed now that there wasn't one. There was no God. I didn't believe in a supernatural, you know, the things yeah. I'd taken for granted, I thought now weren't there. And, um, I, everything was kind of tinged with sadness, right? The mm -hmm. thought that, like, ultimately everything I cared about would be gone, along with me. Right. right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gee, yeah. Um, so it's and <clears throat> pretty hopeless. Yeah. So so this is when I left the church. Um, but my return to faith came in stages. So stage one, so I went through a brief sort of new atheist phase. So I don't know if you're familiar with Sam Harris, the author of The End of Faith. That was a book that I read at this point, and it just really connected for me because he was arguing religion in the age of the weapons of mass destruction is uh, dangerous. Mm. Uh, it's a dangerous luxury. And so then I started thinking, well, maybe my work that tends to undermine certain religious claims you know, as I was seeing it at the time, at least, would be a benefit to humankind. I wanted to make a contribution, right? right, right. So this said, maybe this is going to be a contribution. The thing is, I, I had left the church because of what I saw as the... I'd stopped believing because of what I saw as the evidence. And now I kept seeing evidence from different studies that religion was good for people. Pe religious people were healthier. They were happier. They trusted other people more. They gave more. They volunteered more. Basically, pick a measure. Right. Religious people <laughs> were better off. And so I'd been convinced of the new atheist narrative that religion was dangerous, religion's bad for people. And I thought, remember thinking to myself, look, I stopped believing because of evidence. Am I going to deny the evidence when the evidence says religion's good for people. So I didn't believe in religion at that time, hmm. but I came to believe that religion was good for people. Right. Then sort of a whole other story, uh, I came to uh, believe in God again. Um, 
And uh, that actually had to do in part with science, like looking back at the uh, what we can know about the origins of the universe and so on. There were things there that blew my mind completely. Jeez. You went down the rabbit um, hole. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a shocker to me. It was just as much of a shock to come to believe in God again as it had been to lose faith in God in the first place. Yeah. Um, but it was a better shock. Right, right, right exactly. <laughs> now, now there's some hope again. Yeah. You know, there's some positivity yeah. and there's like purpose. <clears throat> And then um, my youngest brother, Charles, at 25, uh, passed away unexpectedly. And that led me into actually another spiritual crisis um, that led to, again, each of these is like, I've spent a lot of time grappling with religion. So each of these is like a giant story, personal story in itself, right? But I had a kind of reconversion to Christ, Mm -hmm. you know, and... um, that um, is about where I was uh, when I came back to the church. It was a little bit later. I still thought there was no way I could ever come back to the church. I, I, didn't, I didn't see it happening. Because um, I thought I actually thought that I knew. Right, because the knew, evidence is right? there. I knew. I thought I was using a working model of Joseph Smith as an opportunist. I thought he was in it for himself and so on. And I thought I could see that from the patterns of the evidence. The thing that I didn't, um, I didn't stop looking. I didn't stop digging in the history of the church. Hmm. And that's actually how I ended up coming back, right? If I'd stopped digging, if I'd just been like, this is it. hey, this is yeah, the, the, this evidence is really problematic. I can't see how this can ever fit together. I give up. Right. Yeah. And I had given up on the church for a while being a member, but I didn't give up on trying to understand. And the more I tried to understand, eventually, where I had been finding things that seemed to create difficulties, now I started finding things that were resolving difficulties, that were taking things that had been problems before and making more sense of them. And you asked about the, the low point, what was the low point? And I mentioned this was not actually a low point. Interestingly, one of the things that had changed for me that made it possible for me to piece my faith, faith back together and like get more of a big picture and return was that I became happier. That's so, so cool. So That's we so actually underestimate the power of happiness. Yeah. A lot of times when people lose their faith, when they become disillusioned, they become so fixated on certain negatives, their history of the church. And that's understandable. Right. I mean, having been there, right? right? But but when we are unhappy, it gives us tunnel vision. So mm. if you've ever been depressed right. or no, talk to somebody yeah, who's really exactly. depressed, they got tunnel vision they can, and they can't see a light at the end of that tunnel, right? Mm. There's actually research on happiness that shows that happiness, uh, unhappiness literally and figuratively gives us tunnel vision. So they've done studies where they will put a flashing light in somebody's peripheral vision here that they don't know about, and they'll ask them to fixate on a screen in front of them. And if they do things to put the person in a bad mood first, like make them wait a long time or have obnoxious sounds, construction sounds around them (laughs) or something, the people will not notice the flashing light in the side. Our perceptual system literally becomes more narrow when we're unhappy. Whereas if they do things to induce a positive mood, they leave a $10 bill by the front door or something. Right. We're like, I just found $10, right? Yeah. Then those people are more likely to see the light. That's like, so interesting. And happy people can come up with more creative options. So part of what changed here, when I left the church, I was miserable. 
And because I was miserable, I had tunnel vision and my I was thinking in black and white and there was going to be no way mm. to make all these difficult things fit together. But when I had become really happy, and that was partly just by practicing gratitude, mm-hmm. yeah. keeping a gratitude journal, deciding gratitude was kind of who I wanted to be as a person, mm. um, being really grateful for life, it opened things up. I started asking new questions, not the same simple closed-ended, is the church exactly the way I thought it was, or is it a fraud, right? But mm-hmm. like, what's the, what are the options here? And um, I started finding things in my research on the first vision, on the lost 116 pages that were just enormous mind blowers for me that put Joseph Smith in a whole different light. I came to be unable to believe anymore that Joseph Smith was an opportunist. I can see now really clear patterns of evidence for absolutely sincere motives on his part, and such powerful things that he taught that it would be crazy to think that someone who's spiritually insincere could come up with that depth of insight. Hmm. And just all kinds of other things where the implications kept sort of rocking my world, yeah. right? And that was it was research in that. The research findings that were so positive, uh, along with having now the sort of broader vision from being happy you know mm-hmm. that enabled me to piece start piecing my faith back together reconsider my spiritual experiences people assume that maybe if you've left the church lost your faith you either didn't have spiritual experiences or you just were trying to like to go against those spiritual experiences right. my experience was i had powerful spiritual experiences in the church I had just come to question whether those were from some external source. I didn't think they were from God at this time. I thought they were from me. Physiological. I thought they were, yeah, like they're from my own mind. And so I thought they might be personally profound experiences, but that didn't mean that they told me something. They told me something about me, Mm. not something about the universe or God, right? right? Mm. But ultimately, I ended up reconsidering all that. And I remember asking my, saying to myself, If I ask myself, what is the testimony of my life's experience about the church? Is it true? And my thought was, oh, oh, of course. Like, that had not really been the question. The question for me had been, does the history stuff all line up? Right. But I realized that if I actually just were to rely on the experience of my own life, the church was it. This is where I needed to be. Yeah. That's fascinating. I love that pattern of, because I think a lot of people go through it where, where they they start to dive deep yeah. and they discover that maybe the church isn't quite as, you know, butterflies and rainbows as we thought it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you went a step further and you went deeper than that. And then you found the raw truth behind it. Right. What a reverse back! Right. And tried, that led yeah. you back. I tried to go as deep as possible into the non-butterflies and rainbows yeah, stuff. Right. Like the the most difficult aspects of Joseph Smith's life. So I you're familiar with the Joseph Smith's polygamy mm-hmm. series that Brian Hales yep. did. It's these three mm-hmm. volumes that stack about like this, right? It's uh, many hundreds of pages. It cites about 1,500 sources. If you open up to the title page, it says... Joseph Smith's polygamy, 
Brian Seahouse, with the assistance of Don Bradley, Brian mm. hired me. He's a doctor. Right. He, he works at a hospital. He didn't have time to go dig in the archives so much. So he hired me. So for two years, I went to various archives. I went as far away as Yale University That's twice. So cool. Had to look at documents there. We gathered some 1,500 sources on Joseph Smith and polygamy. And then that was the basis on which he wrote these books. Right. I helped him with analysis as well as gathering documents. Had some of my own findings on the subject independent That's so of his. That's cool. I didn't so, realize. So Joseph Smith's polygamy is definitely one of the bigger, difficult Yo, issues to grasp. Yeah, it's right? huge. So, right. so I looked. This is the kind of thing I was digging into, among other things, the really difficult stuff. Mm -hmm. And after digging in all that stuff... I came back. Like I, I I'm not saying I right. have all the answers, but I have no, but you evolving answers that are good enough that they tell me with certainty, right? Based on this is literally tens of thousands of hours of research, right? This is I've given much of my <laughs> life to doing. Don't know this. if I've been alive that. Since I know I exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you heard? You know that if you do ten thousand hours of anything, yeah. you're professional, yeah. right? An expert. Yeah. An expert. Yeah. I, and there's I had a class where this girl like. The teacher was like, has anyone in here done 10,000 hours of anything? Like, very, like, cynical. This girl raises her hand, and the teacher's like, oh, really? Like, what is it? And the girl's like, piano. And she's like, okay, then come play in front of the whole class, you know? Mm -hmm. And she's, like, super skeptical and going to prove that, like, it's impossible, you know? And then this girl comes up and blows our mind. <laughs> just was, and the teacher's just jaw dropped. It was like, I feel like that's where you're at, you know, where it's like someone comes to you, like, really, 10,000 hours, and you're like, let me show you. So 10,000 hours is actually... Um, so, if I'm recalling right... Um, it's like seven hours a day two, for four years. 2,000, uh, yeah. 2,000 hours is, I think, a full-time... So, 40 hours a week for about 50 weeks a year. A year, It's 2,000 yeah. hours. So, it's about five years of full-time uh, devotion oh to gosh. something. Yeah. So, the 10,000 hours thing is you have to, like, really devote yourself to, like, not just practicing, but digging to learn right, principles to of being better yeah. and so on. And, yeah, that's the way to become an expert on something. So, if we could finish with just, like, um, maybe advice or, or just, like, a, oh, a, like yeah. a, just, like... Maybe for the people that have made that first dive right. and they're hitting the difficult yeah. stuff, what do you say to them? Okay, you might have to have me on again sometime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, Because I have a lot of thoughts on this. So one of them that I would say I've already alluded to, and that is it's really difficult to solve any kind of problem or figure anything out when we're unhappy. And I think it's actually unfortunate that we don't talk more about the importance of sort of staying emotionally grounded hmm. while you're trying to figure out faith issues. And you're talking um, really from a physiological standpoint. Yeah, like, like feeling good. Yeah, not just like feeling like like warm fuzzies, but like being happy affects the chemistry. And, exactly. and you're saying you need that chemistry. Exactly, exactly. That that helps. It helps our minds to be more creative. Hmm. If you really want to figure anything out, including religious, spiritual issues. Mm -hmm. And it's probably especially important there. It's important for us to have ways of experiencing the goodness of life, of sort of opening our our hearts. And so, as I mentioned, for me, uh, practicing gratitude was really sort of my... Mm -hmm. it, it was vital to me figuring these things out because it helped me to be happier 
and then being happier to be more open to new ideas. And so I would just keep a gratitude journal, right? Write down every day, like three things that I'm grateful for and why, and let myself take just a minute to feel that gratitude, to try more deliberately to thank other people, maybe every day to try to send someone some sort of message of gratitude. There's actually a psychologist named Robert Emmons. Bob Emmons is a very devout Christian, wonderful guy. I've gotten to know him a little bit. He's written tons about gratitude and the psychology of gratitude that I learned from. Um, loving kindness meditation has been another big one for me. Obviously, just doing things for other people, turning outward, right? What that does, it opens us up, mm -hmm. right? It opens us up. And that's a key here. If we close down, hunker down, get sort of absorbed in ourselves and our own crisis, that's a natural thing to do, but it's also a counterproductive right. thing to do, right. right? So the more we can be open, find positive things to appreciate, that's that's really interesting. We... It goes back to the the scripture that says the the natural man is an enemy to God. Yeah, right. And I feel like that applies perfectly here because when you follow that natural tendency to close yourself off, yeah. you're missing God in the peripherals. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting because a natural man not becomes an enemy to yourself. It yeah. Becomes an enemy to your neighbor, to your family. Yeah. You know. Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's got to so be much. like that's... it's like the most unique take on how to get through a faith crisis. Like keep a gratitude journal. I love that. Yeah. Well, and I think very practical. I know, like every every episode, somebody you know, there's there's something you can take away. And I know everyone like is. It's kind of up to you what you want to take away and whether it's what yeah. you need right now. But I think gratitude is kind of a universal some something that we can all practice every day. Regardless of where I, I know I don't have a lot of time. I have a couple other quick things I could okay. say. Um, so um, one would be sort of don't don't give up the ship, right? Um, like for me, um, I when I was outside the church, I was really outside the church. I was very active in ex Mormon social events. I went mm. a couple times to the ex Mormon conference, wow. and so on. Right? I was really part of that community, and I can tell you that almost entirely the pattern, among other patterns I see, and I say this as somebody who has actually great admiration for ex-Mormons, there's a courage that's involved in abandoning things that you were so attached to, maybe going against your family. This isn't a criticism. This is an observation of what I think may be helpful and what may not be helpful. But for ex-Mormons, so often um, the pattern is that once they start thinking, that, like have a perception, things were not the way that I thought they were. The simplistic version of church history that I heard right. isn't right. Mm -hmm. Their curiosity tends to stop there. Hmm. And they just are sort of like, I've discovered something. I've discovered that things weren't the way that I thought they were. And actually, I want to say sincerely, like, congratulations, right? Yeah. Like, you had a simplistic narrative. That's been destroyed, blown away. Which is great. You had some realizations. Good. Now, what next, right? Like, what do you make now of your life's experience as a Latter-day Saint? How good this is for people? Where did all this come from? What does it mean? Not just the negation. What is it not? Okay, it's not this simplistic narrative. What is it? Hmm. And so for me, not giving up on searching, staying curious was like, for me, that, brought, that helped bring me back, right. right? And then also just maybe... Lastly, 
um, just being open to the possibilities. God is apparently a lot different than us, right? Like if you look around the world, the world doesn't work the way I would think it uh, would, right? Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, like the sufferings of children and so on. I I don't think that this is how I would design things. I admittedly have a limited perspective, right? But it doesn't look to me like this is how I design things. And so often people say, well, God would never have done this in the history of the church. Hmm. And I just want to be like, how do you know that? What's your empirical evidence that like, God <laughs> wouldn't work this way? When we live in a world where everything is really weird, mm-hmm, bad mm-hmm. things happen. There's like quantum physics that doesn't work anything like any of <laughs> yeah. us would have designed it. And yet we seem to think, I know exactly how God would work and how God wouldn't work. And instead of making assumptions there, I would say, treat that as an empirical question. Look at how God does work in the world. Look at how he has worked in the history of the church. Let's figure out more how God works instead of making assumptions that may not do any good. That's awesome. That's, That's awesome. Great. I think take those, apply them. <laughs> you know, um, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Please check out uh, your your book. You know, oh, yeah. and just like yeah. in any of the works you've done, I'm sure if you just search Don Bradley, you're yeah. gonna find um, some stuff. I think don't be afraid to find answers. Like don't be afraid to dig. And please subscribe to our channel. Yes. Yeah. Um, Do you have a place where, like, if people have questions for you, they can like email you? Do you have like an author email or? I, I could give an email address, and then you could maybe post that also. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah put it in the description. So, so first off, I, I've got a number of things online. Um, I recently spoke at the FAIR conference on the First Vision, which is part of the research that led me back to the church, so I tell a little bit more of my story there. My research on the Lost 116 Pages was involved in my return to the church. I talk about that, actually, in the conclusion to that book. Um, my... Uh, so people, there are things that people can Google, right? Don Bradley Mormon or Don Bradley First Vision or so on. Uh, but my email address, I'll I'll say it, I'll spell it, and then you guys can put it up because uh, <laughs> it's maybe a difficult one. It's onandagas1 at gmail.com. So that's O-N-A-N-D-A-G-U-S numeral one at gmail.com and I'll write that down for you guys. <laughs> Do you comment on YouTube every once in a while? Maybe. Have you seen? I swear I've seen Onondagas oh. Oh, okay. somewhere. Okay. Where have I seen that? It's from the self story in church history. Oh, uh, interesting. It's a very unusual story. <laughs> That's fascinating. Is it, and is that okay if people have questions for you? Can they email oh, you? Oh, please. That? Yeah. Awesome. Because I think you're going to relate to a lot of people yeah. out there. So please feel free to ask. Cool. Awesome. See you guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you want to watch our videos, check us out on YouTube or shoot us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.